Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. We're finding not just that study, but studies across uh, across the board is that becoming the most connected humans in history has had no positive effects on levels of loneliness. Uh, if anything, we're actually more lonely than we were before. And you know, and this was such an important uh, revelation for me when I began working on this book that uh, it turns out that the cure for loneliness is not more company, right? The cure for loneliness is learning how to be alone, uh, and and I think this is this is a, a big mistake that we're all making together. Uh, when you're lonely in in a grocery store lineup for uh, 20 seconds, instead of spending that time uh, daydreaming or, or thinking about a loved one, uh, we dive into our phone because we can't handle even a a little bit of it, and you know it. Uh, I think most mental faculties require a kind of exercise, and very much so uh, when it comes to spending time alone. We have to practice spending time alone. We'll feel uncomfortable at first, uh, but it's something that you get better at, and, and there are benefits. It's, it's, it's just like going to the gym. It, it feels horrible the first few times you do it. One can be instructed in society. One is only inspired by solitude. The perceptive words of German writer and scholar Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What is solitude? How do we find it? And what are the benefits? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack those questions with Canadian writer and journalist Michael Harris, whose latest book, Solitude, in pursuit of a singular life in a crowded world, has just been published by Random House, where Michael argues, Solitude is refreshing. It makes us calmer, more attentive, clear-headed. Most of all, it relieves the pressures of conformity. It gives us a space we need to discover the deepest sources of passion, enjoyment and fulfilment in our lives. So, why is something so simple so challenging? And is it possible to log out, power down and switch off? So, my name's Michael Harris. Uh, I'm the author of two books of nonfiction. Uh, the first was called The End of Absence. Uh, and that's all about uh, what it means to be the last generation that remembers life before the internet. And uh, my most recent book is called Solitude, which is a kind of extension of the first book's ideas. It's looking at uh, what what is the value of solitude and absence and uh, daydreaming, all those qualities of life that uh, we seem to have uh, put to one side as we charge online. Really well done on the book, um, Michael. I have to say it's very, um, very poetic and very inspiring in parts. And you bring up so many different uh, interesting questions. You cover so much ground. It's uh, really, really well done. Listen, I'm going to throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and show we can take it from there. Do you think a lot of us are afraid of our own company, afraid of our own skin, so to speak? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's where this book came from for me. Uh, I've just moved uh, with my partner to Toronto. And uh, I, uh, I didn't know anybody in that city. It's a really big city. And uh, I was spending my life working at home. Uh, and I was very lonely. Uh, I, I wasn't used 
to that level of loneliness. Even within a city, it's possible to be very lonely, I think. Um, and, and that's where I began thinking about, uh, well, I guess the difference between being lonely and experiencing solitude itself. Uh, I, I wanted to figure out how to be alone in a, in a healthy way instead of always feeling as though I, I, I was somehow failing at being alone. Can I throw you a philosophical question? Michael, do you think we're ever fully alone? I know you write somewhere, to be happily alone is to affirm one's fate in the love of others. And that line really got me thinking that, you know, we're um, we're alone with our memories, but we're in relationship with our memories. We're in relationship with our plans for the future. And we're always carrying around stories about ourselves. So in ways we are armed with ourselves and our stuff, but are we really, really alone? Absolutely. I mean, I mean like everything else, uh, the question of solitude is a question of uh, spectrums, right? Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, the funny thing about spectrums is sometimes they come back around on, on, on uh, their own ends. So the, the person who's really happily alone usually is only able to experience that, uh, that rich solitude because they feel so connected to the world around them. If you don't feel connected to the world around them, then then you fall into a kind of loneliness, and you're desperately searching for those connections constantly. So so yes, I mean if uh, if you're happy uh, sitting on a bench watching the ocean for a few hours, it's probably because you have beautiful, rich relationships in your life, and you can draw on those relationships as a kind of uh, psychological reserve. Do you think um, as time spent alone, whether it's for a couple of hours or a couple of days or whatever, can make everybody more calmer in some way? Do you, like, do you think it's for everyone mm. that they have a kind of a proper spin-off from things? Well, I think it varies, absolutely. Some people are naturally introverted and uh, without some time alone in every day, uh, they'll actually feel exhausted. They, they, they can't uh, really mentally handle it. Others don't get their energy from uh, time alone. They, they get it from interacting with other people. But I would say that even those extroverts are, are missing some component of a, of a full, rich life if they don't explore their solitude a little. Uh, but but to, your, to your point, I, I, yeah, I, I think some people have more to gain from time alone than others. And we all have to uh, design our own uh, solitude diet, depending on how it works for us, I think. Now, everybody's route into solitude or an aspect of solitude is very, uh, very, very different. And I suppose the stories that come with that. But you bring up a very inspirational story of a lady called Dr. Edith Bone. And she had a very mm. traumatic introduction to solitude. She was in seven years uh, solitary confinement in Hungary. And how she kept herself going was so unbelievably remarkable and her mental resilience. Mm. And it struck me, though, that there's only so many Dr. Edith Bones in the world who can actually live and prosper and flourish while being so alone and so, um, and so removed from all aspects of life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Dr. Bone uh, is a kind of a hero character for the book. She, I, I tell her story in the prologue, uh, not because I envy her circumstances. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that uh, most of us become better people for, for solitary confinement, uh, but because I, I envied her faculties. Uh, the, 
the fact, I mean, most people, as, as you say, uh, uh, become depressed and anxious uh, with even a week of solitary confinement. This was a woman who could spend seven years alone, and because she entered that, uh, that prison sentence uh, with such rich mental faculties, uh, she was able to survive it with her sanity intact. Uh, so she was really a, a point of inspiration for me when I was first doing research for this book. Uh, I, I wanted, uh, again, not you know, not to experience what she's experienced, uh, but to figure out uh, what was it uh, in her life, in her time, uh, in in her mind uh, that gave her that kind of a strength, which which I seem to be so lacking. It's amazing to think that we all have the capacity to some degree of being able to live within our imaginations. And when you apply mm-hmm. that to the challenges that any, any life faces, whether it's um, marital separation, whether it's grief, trauma, um, sick children, whatever it is, to be able to allow yourself a moment in the day just to live within your imagination in order to keep yourself going. Um, it's, 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 it's a beautiful idea, isn't it? Yes. I mean, I... I think we tend to think of those moments alone as luxuries nowadays. Um, but you know, I, the more I, I read about uh, the history of solitude and, and the, the uh, research uh, that's coming out now about what solitude does to our minds, uh, the more I started to think of it uh, as a, a kind of uh, healthy mental food that, that we'd been depriving ourselves of. Um, you know, sim- similar to uh, the 1950s in in, uh, in North America, where we were all eating nothing but canned food and you know bright orange cheese, uh, and, and organic meat would have been considered a kind of obscene luxury. Nowadays, we think of it as just sort of living a healthy uh, a healthy life. I, I'm my hope is that. Uh, the next generation coming up will start to see breaks in in uh, their media saturated days as a kind of necessary step in having a healthy mental life. You recommend um, cultivating your inner weirdo and that made me laugh so hard because I kind of thought to myself, <laughs> well, I'm probably pretty good at my outer weirdo, but my inner weirdo, how do I um, go about that? Cultivating the inner weirdo. So that... That uh, comes from a section that's uh, looking at uh, where we get our, uh, how how we decide uh, what we like, what we love, uh, what we want to do. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, talk uh, nowadays about this uh, idea of a filter bubble. So when you go online, uh, there are algorithms that are determined to get you clicking on things, and those algorithms are uh, are uh, not interested in getting you to explore exciting or weird new things. They're going to give you more and more of the things you already uh, know that you like. So it, it creates a kind of uh, 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 reinscription of the biases you already have, and it, it, it produces a kind of a deadening of curiosity, I think. Um, the idea of cultivating that inner weirdo is to instead of uh, looking for approval through retweets or, 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 or uh, likes on Facebook, uh, 
you know, maybe run your hand down a, a bunch of books at a library uh, and, and let something a little bit more chaotic or accidental uh, inform uh, the, the fruits of your curiosity. Michael, you pitch up a very interesting question on the value of daydreaming and you kind of explore what that does to you on an emotional, psychological and I suppose a spiritual level as well. What's your own view aside from the book? Do you think we do enough of it? Oh, uh, I don't, no. Because uh, again, I don't think we have faith in things that aren't immediately giving us results, right? Daydreaming is, a, is actually a very powerful mental activity. When you, when you daydream, you're brain activates something called the default mode network. Um, and uh, neuro research uh, recently has been looking at how active that uh, daydreaming brain actually is. It's where all those eureka moments come from. When you're waking up and not really thinking about much and having a shower, and suddenly you realize the answer to the problem you were puzzling over all last night, it's because you're allowing your brain to relax, daydream, and do some work without the interfering ego that thinks it knows how to puzzle through something, right? Uh, so there's something very useful about building that silent mental time into your day. It's not uh, just a, a luxury. It's actually something incredibly practical, it turns out, to you know have a cup of coffee and, and stare out the window. Um, so we, we think of these things as... as uh, time wasters, and and and, uh, we, and we want to be productive. We're we're trained uh, very much. Uh, I don't know about Ireland, but certainly in North America, we're we're very much trained to make everything uh, pragmatic and and results oriented. Right, but uh, all through our schooling, uh, and and we, I feel like that's flexing just one set of the brain's muscles. Whereas daydreaming is this whole other set of, of brain muscles that we, we sometimes uh, don't exercise. Yeah, you had a very interesting um, um, piece in the book with um, Dr. Kalina Christoph. Um, I think she runs the UBC Cognitive Neuroscience of Thought Lab in Vancouver. And I hadn't um, heard right. much about her and I looked her up and she seems like an unbelievably interesting woman. But she said something to you on the lines of that our culture puts a premium on control in all things. And she, you know, she gave you lots of different stats on, you know, the power of the wandering mind. But she really has a point mm-hmm. because in a lot of ways we live very busy lives very scheduled lives and all aspects of that lead into control and trying to control everything and um, it has to have a massive impact on our cognitive functions at the end of the day doesn't it? Oh absolutely I I mean uh, I live in Vancouver so I I was lucky enough that uh, I I had some proximity to Kalina and and her lab Um, and yeah I I think uh, you hit the nail on the head this is uh, something that really affects our cognitive function. If we don't make room for daydreaming, we're not using our whole brain, right? And uh, I, that, that's a real tragedy when you think of it. And when you think that through and look at the kind of the, the next stages from that, that I would imagine would leave in, lead into issues with problem solving and trying to uh, get your he- head around even some very simple tasks that kind of demand of you to either think critically or to independently think in some way and to problem so- solve and go deeper in yourself to figure the answer. And sometimes that takes time. Sometimes you can do it quite instantly. But it, it's, an, it, it's an aspect of how we use our brain. 
And you can't lead into that if you're trying to constantly control every situation you're walking into. Precisely. And the other the other thing that, of course, daydreaming does is it forces you to be thinking outside of the crowd, right? So much of our thinking these days is happening online, it's happening on social media, and that creates a kind of uh, uh, follow, the follow the leader effect, right? Uh, whereas to really know what you think, yes, you have to go to the crowd and listen to what they say. You have to go to, hopefully, some authorities and listen to what they say as well. And then you do have to step away from the crowd and process those things on your own. Um, one, of the, one of the things that uh, I, I spent some time on in the book is looking at uh, great scientists and, and great artists and the way that they uh, designed uh, a practice of thinking into their lives, where they were connected to other humans, of course, uh, where they were gathering information as much as they could. But every, uh, every hour that you would spend talking with others would always require a certain amount of time off on your own, puzzling through things. And I think that's something that uh, a lot of us these days have really uh, let go by the wayside. We, we don't uh, spend much time at all analyzing the things that we've read online uh, uh, from the comfort of our own brains. Instead, it becomes very reactionary. It becomes a kind of a, 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 a game of social capital to be passing ideas around constantly instead of stepping away and puzzling over those ideas. And it also comes back on your um, innate resourcefulness or you're developing your sense of resourcefulness because we're all moving about a lot. As I said, we're leading very busy lives. We're also doing a lot of travelling and uh, t- holidaying in, in, in different strange or crazy places. And you have a very funny story about, I think it was either London or Paris and you were visiting an old school or college friend and you know, you'd know you got used to um, all the Google Maps and stuff like that and you decided just to discover the city for itself and kind of uh, knows about the place and just figure it out as you went along and you describe a completely different uh, visit to a city and a city that you kind of kind of knew uh, I suppose you kind of knew a bit but that you saw it mm. with completely different eyes because you weren't using you know maps me or whatever it is in your mobile phone and um, you were just figuring it out and surprisingly you had a better time because it, there was more spontaneity yeah that, absolutely I mean, so that part of the book I'm describing Navigating Paris uh, with my uh, with my smartphone uh, versus an experience in London that I had when I was uh, twenty years old, and and there were no smartphones, uh, so that that sense of discovery uh, that that was possible uh, when you were not just willing to get lost, but expecting to get lost in a strange new place. Um, the the way that uh, uh, some geography people talk about this is allocentric versus egocentric uh, ideas of, of the landscape. So an allocentric is that kind of bird's eye view that you get when you're looking down at a Google map. And egocentric is, of course, uh, looking at the world through your own eyes. Uh, so seeing the children playing on the sidewalk, seeing, you know, smelling the cafe as you walk by it, uh, that, that sensory oriented, uh, much less informed, but more curious, perhaps, uh, idea of walking through a city. And, uh, you know, the most exciting versions of, uh, of travel probably include a combination of allocentric, that, that, that bird's eye view, and the egocentric, the kind of 
uh, haphazard and, and curious experience. One of the aspects of control and I suppose how uh, technology is pervasing or hitting every aspect of our life is on um, the e-jet industry and it's something that you do go into quite a bit of detail on in the book and it's funny, I found that chapter quite uncomfortable to read Um, I understand what everyone's doing I understand why people are I suppose curating their lives and wanting to have something there after they die but it makes for um, very morally and um, uh, emotionally, I would, I, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. Uncomfortable reading, and I'm just wondering what was that like to research? Because you bring up some very interesting guys who have developed um, very interesting companies and have got a lot of uh, investment in developing um, EDET uh, technologies and so on. But it's still, I wonder, um, it's it's all quite uncomfortable. I mean, so the EDET industry, which is sort of uh, in in some ways related to this idea of the singularity. Uh, it, it's trading on uh, the idea that a temporal or mortal life uh, is not actually necessary. That that uh, that the death of humans, at the end of humans, and in fact the, the experience of grief that living humans have, all these things are sort of bugs in the system that need to be fixed. Right? That death is an engineering problem, and uh, and, and the, the solution tends to be the idea that uh, you can, up, in in one way or another, you can upload your consciousness or upload yourself uh, to to the cloud, to to a computer of some kind, and that therefore you can live in perpetuity. Uh, the, I mean, this gets uh, enacted in different ways, but that's that's the basic idea. Um, and I think that the thing that's missing there um, is a kind of definition difference. There's a very big difference between recall and, uh, and memory. So if you think of what a computer is very good at is recall, right? It, uh, uh, it will show you the thing that you plugged into it, basically, or it will it will run the thing through an algorithm and give you the exact answer. Uh, this is what Picasso said, right? Uh, uh, he, computers are boring because they can only give you answers. Um, but a human life is full of uh, questions much more than it is answers. A uh, human life is not about recall. It's about memory. It's, it's, about, uh, it's about a very changing and metaphorical uh, experience uh, that... Uh, I, I can't imagine human experience actually being put into a computer because we don't want uh, immediate recall. We we want something uh, that's constantly shifting and, and and curious and and is intangible on some level. Uh, so I I've spoken with a few people about this philosophers and some people at the Singularity University down in California, and I, I still haven't. Um, uh, I still haven't heard anybody describe an experience of e-death uh, that sounds anything like a human life to me. It sounds basically like a, uh, a recording of a human life. I suppose we're all grappling with issues around consciousness to some degree and our understandings and awareness and all of that type of stuff. But maybe it's a generational yeah. thing and I, and I think for me it's a moral thing um, primarily that I find all of that very creepy but I also find it um, very indulgent and very um, uh, very unnecessary. 
you know so mm. uh, how like when you met these different um, you met some very successful entrepreneurs I think some of them were from Eastern Europe and you know very switched mm. on guys had a lot going and a lot going on in their heads but I wonder <laughs> um, there's a kind of a mushrooming in um, the business of um, e-debt industry and you take that on to greater questions and greater asks of ourselves humanity and technology and um, what sort of a world will be living in do you know what becomes the primary focus the life or the curated life and um, that's all very murky. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the e-death industry is, is a sort of extreme version of something that you're seeing all across the board, right? This is, uh, in, in some ways, uh, uh, totemic of uh, the Silicon Valley uh, experience uh, in general, right? That life is a, uh, is a problem that needs to be fixed. And that uh, productivity levels can always be advanced. And in, in some ways, we're uh, we're still extending uh, that myth of the industrial revolution, right? That uh, that human lives are are things that need to be uh, utilized, that need to be maximized. Uh, so, and this is not to say that in any way that that I'm anti-technology, um, but it, it's really. Uh, I mean, Melvin Kranzberg had this idea, this great line, he said, technology isn't good or evil, but neither is it neutral, right? I I feel very strongly about that, that uh, as we we see these these new technologies or new new Silicon Valley-oriented philosophies coming down uh, on us, uh, it's not that they're bad ideas or good ideas, It's, it's just that we need to have balance in our lives and that... You know, the, the knife in your kitchen is not a good or a bad thing, uh, but it's also not neutral either, right? It, it's a dangerous and beautiful tool. And, and I think that's the best we can say for, for our smartphones and for our Twitter accounts. These are danger and beautiful tools uh, that we need to learn how to use better. I was very interested, Michael, in your research on depression and some of it was very surprising and almost counterintuitive. But you know what I mean? I suppose that's the beauty of research. You visited Oregon Health and Science University and um, they've conducted a lot of research into the impact of communications and technology on people's levels of depression and whether it's, you know, the amount of text messages they receive or phone calls. And it's very surprising results. Can you tell me about it? Right. Well, I mean, what we're finding, not just that study, but studies across, uh, across the board, is that becoming the most connected humans in history has had no positive effects on levels of loneliness. Uh, if anything, we're actually more lonely than we were before. And, you know, and this was such an important uh, revelation for me when I began working on this book, that uh, it turns out that the cure for loneliness is not more company right? The cure for loneliness is learning how to be alone. Uh, and, and I think this is, this is a, a big mistake that we're all making together. Uh, when you're lonely in, in a grocery store lineup for uh, 20 seconds, instead of spending that time uh, daydreaming or, or thinking about a loved one, uh, we dive into our phone because we can't handle even a, a little bit of it. And you know, it. Uh, I think most mental faculties require a kind of exercise, and very much so uh, when it comes to spending time alone. We have to practice spending time alone. We'll feel uncomfortable at first, uh, 
but it's something that you get better at and, and there are benefits. It's, it's, it's just like going to the gym. It, it feels horrible the first few times you do it. But it is surprising that so many people are scared of a bit of time to reflect or silences, whether it's in conversation, mm. whether it's at, um, you know, at parties or even in the workplace. We're all expected to chit chat the whole time. And um, when you do yeah. just <laughs> shut up in front of somebody or just kind of p- patiently listen, uh, some people can get very distracted by that because there's almost oh. an expectation to keep on going. We're terrified of Absolutely. I mean, this is why everybody uh, text messages while they drive, right? Because when you're driving, you're in your car, and uh, you start to have that that scary feeling of, of oh my god, I'm I'm spending time in my own head. Uh, the the deep darkness is going to come and get me. So you have to dive into your phone. It doesn't matter that you're going to run over someone and kill them. Uh, the the uh, loneliness of your own company is 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 worse than the threat of killing somebody on the road. Uh, you know, I, I think that, that tells you all you need to know about how much we hate being alone, how much we hate quietude. Uh, the, the, there's a technique in, in uh, uh, journalism. Uh, I, I used to write quite a bit of newspaper and magazine stuff. And um, if you ask someone a question that they're not answering straight, if you just leave a moment of silence there, most people will crack within 10 seconds and just spill all the information that you want. Because, again, it is better to tell all your secrets than to have to live uh, in a moment of quiet, right? Tell me, um, <laughs> you bring up um, David Edgar's book, uh, The Circle, which is a phenomenally mm. intense read. And, um, and it's, mm. it, but it's a very interesting read because it's, it's so challenging on, you know, thinking things through and the development of whether it's technology, surveillance, whatever it is. What did you make of it? I mean, I love David's work. I always have. Um, that book, The Circle, um, I'm not sure what year it came out exactly, um, but I, I think it was at least a decade ago now. Um, and w- when it came out, I remember people not being too excited about it. Uh, but then they became more excited, uh, I think, because some of the stuff that he, uh, it's a you know a dystopian future, uh, but not too far off where we are now. And I think we, we're getting closer and closer to the world he imagined. And so people are starting to become uh, more excited by that novel uh, nowadays, I think, uh, than when it first came out. It might have been a bit ahead of its time. Uh, in fact, there's, a, there's now a, a film version of it as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been always in love with dystopian uh, novels because they really are our uh, best windows into the future, often. Uh, 1984, Brave New World, you know, these are all books that are like time machines for me. Uh, they, they show us something about where we're headed.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with Canadian writer and journalist Michael Harris about his latest book, Solitude, in pursuit of a single 